Welcome to Direct Current, an energy.gov podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dozier. Today, we've got something a little different for you. June is Pride Month, so we wanted to share a special episode that originally aired last year on Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory's podcast, A Day in the Half-Life. It's about scientists who transition to a new identity and the challenges that come with making that transition in a field where your professional reputation is closely tied to the name on your published research. But a new initiative is working to make it easier for transgender scientists to get the credit they deserve. A Day in the Half-Life is produced and hosted by Aliyah Kovner at Berkeley Lab. It explores the past, present, and future of STEM fields through interviews with researchers. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and I highly recommend you check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes at energy.gov slash podcast. That's all for now. Here's the episode. Ben Barris, a trailblazing neuroscientist, transitioned to a male identity in 1997 at the age of 47. He was the first openly transgender scientist to be elected to the prestigious National Academy of Sciences and devoted much of his time to mentoring female and LGBTQ scientists, having seen firsthand how difficult it can be to navigate straight male-dominated STEM culture as someone who doesn't fit in that box. He was a famous and highly respected scientist, and yet he still struggled to connect the research he had done under his previous name to the research he was doing under his chosen identity. He once recounted overhearing a fellow Stanford professor say, Ben Bars gave a great seminar today, but then his work is much better than his sister's. For scientists, their career's legacy is etched by their public papers, the lectures they've given, the panels they've led, and the citations they've received. Having that legacy fractured by a name change from a gender transition, or one of the many other reasons to change one's name, can have a hugely detrimental effect. And yet scientists, like everyone else, deserve to conduct their professional lives with the identity they choose, without facing inequitable hurdles. These days, it's getting easier for transgender scientists to live openly, but the practical challenges of name changes remain. So Berkeley Lab is coordinating an effort to help make this easier. We, alongside other labs and institutions, are working with major publishers to create streamlined and private processes for researchers to reach out and retroactively change their names on published works. I spoke with two folks at the front of this initiative, Lady Edos and Yor Kieber, as well as Amelie Trawatha, a transgender scientist who has first-hand experience with the difficult bureaucracy of name changes. My name is Lady Edos. I'm the lab's uh, first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer uh, in the laboratory directorate. And I'm happy to um, be in this role and contribute to IDEA at the lab, which is inclusion, diversity, equity, and accountability. I'm Jörg Heber. Uh, I'm the research integrity officer at the lab. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I look after research integrity and how we do research um, at the lab. I'm Amelie Trawatha, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a postdoc here at the lab in the material science division, and I study broadly applications of AI to material science. To start out, Lady, could you give me a sense of where the push for this initiative came from? 
Yeah, thanks, Leah. So um, let me actually start out by uh, talking about um, Jörg and having him be on board, because I was really pleased to hear about Jörg being hired at the lab last December as our new uh, research integrity officer reporting to our deputy lab director. So as our new uh, RIO, or research integrity officer, uh, Jörg is charged to lead lab-wide efforts to help researchers with best practices including high standards for research integrity and ethical behavior. Uh, what I was also pleased to learn um, in, in conversations with Jörg is that in his previous role, he was the editorial director at Public Library of Science, or PLUS, and editor-in-chief at PLUS One. So he had this rich background in the publishing world. So um, he told me about an idea that he had for collaboration uh, to try to help our transgender researchers come up with a more streamlined way of getting their names changed um, with publishers and to see if we can help uh, coordinate an effort and workflow with various publishers and even involve other national labs, perhaps even the UC system in the future. We'll see. Um, so uh, this is how it came about. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about where it's at right now, but uh, I'm just very pleased uh, to partner with Jörg on this effort. And Jurgen, so it sounds like you were a driving force for this initiative when you came into the lab. For you, was this something that you had been just thinking about a lot on your own, or was it something you'd already sort of been developing as a plan previous to joining Berkeley Lab? Yes, I've been I've been exposed to uh, sort of the concerns from the community around this uh, for a little while. Um, when I was editor in chief, even a few years back, um, we had requests uh, to change names on published papers and. I did that in a very ad hoc manner, um, but then starting sometime last year or, or the year before, um, certain publishers have started to have formal policies around uh, changing names on published uh, papers. And um, I thought this was a very, it's a, it's a great initiative. Um, and at the Public Library of Science at PLOS, uh, we implemented a similar policy. Um, and in response to that policy, uh, a number of um, transgender researchers approached us and said, this is fantastic. Uh, it's very useful. Um, but if you have worked in research for, for quite a while, then you may have a very long catalog of papers and articles and research outputs uh, where you need to change your name. Um, and this is, uh, it's, it's quite a, a burden logistically, emotionally, um, and um, so, so there's there's still problems that need to be solved. Um, there was not too much that I could do on the on the publisher side uh, because we could only control the papers that an author has published at a certain publisher. Uh, but coming to the lab, um, I thought, okay, well, this is one of the problems we can tackle, and and that's when I partnered with Lady, um, and we thought, okay, can we make a difference here? Can we support at least the researchers at, um, at Berkeley Lab or even the other, other national labs in organizing these changes? So you wanted to create this initiative so that it wouldn't have to be each individual scientist facing this issue up against the bureaucracy of the journals? Yes, exactly. If you have published 20, 30 papers, uh, you need to contact potentially each and every journal office separately. Um, if you have uh, other art items that you published, like uh, preprints, so that's something that you publish before you post online before you publish a paper, that needs to be changed. Uh, there may be data sets that, that are published or other items. Uh, so it can be a, a fairly long list. Um, and, and the bureaucracy of changing it can also be quite cumbersome. Um, 
or potentially Emily has has tried to has has tried uh, that and can maybe uh, also let us a bit more, know a bit more about those kind of efforts. Yeah, I mean, just as someone who's been through this as an individual academic trying to change my papers, like I, my research career is only eight-ish years old that I've been actively publishing, and there was still four separate publishers I had to contact, and each one of those had their own policy, their own systems. Of those four, three of them didn't have a policy at all before I contacted them, and then it's quite a lot of effort in terms of just like explaining why this is necessary and justifying it. And it is, it's a lot of work, um, even though I was fortunate enough that each of those publishers responded positively to my request, which is not always true. Even then, like best faith efforts from both sides, it ended up taking up a lot of my time. Um, and so it would be a huge deal if I could have just talked to someone at the lab and had all of this done on my behalf. It would have taken a lot of work off my plate. So to kind of zoom out a little bit and, and kind of discuss the history of transgender scientists and what the culture of STEM has been like over the years, because this is obviously um, a great milestone moment where, um, you know, such a practical change is being made. But could any of you speak to what that has been like historically? Yeah, um, this is Lady. I can speak on that um, a little bit. So, um, you know, Several years ago, uh, we were, you know, hearing uh, different challenges from our transgender researchers and colleagues around, um, you know, just challenges around changing their names just at the lab, right? So all the different systems and, you know, the the whole coming out process to your colleagues and also um, letting uh, your external uh, collaborators know and and just all of that, just administratively and, and emotionally, as as Jörg mentioned, um, just really really. Um, uh, was impactful, and we wanted to find a way to have uh, to have a way to support our trans colleagues. So uh, back in uh, 2015 uh, was uh, the very first um, ERG or Employee Resource Group at the lab, which was which is Lambda Alliance, which is an employee resource group that supports our LGBTQ plus uh, colleagues here and. We uh, undertook uh, one of our initial projects is to launch. Uh, the very first workplace gender transition guidelines at the lab. And from what I can tell or from what I know, I believe it's one of the first or at least the first in uh, the UC system and perhaps even in the National Lab Complex. Um, so we were you know, par part of that leading uh, pioneering uh, stage of putting that out there. And so you know, I think having that uh, transition guidelines out there really... Uh, articulated, you know, what will the institution help you with uh, in terms of uh, changing names within the systems? And what can we help take off your plate so that, you know, you, you know, this is the role that you have to do in terms of, you know, uh, making this announcement uh, to colleagues, but, you know, we can help with trying to uh, minimize some of those burdens um, institutionally. So I think this is just an extension of that, but even more at a bigger stage, uh, more international level, so to speak, uh, because we have different, you know, researchers all over the world. And if we can help them with this coordination and, uh, you know, efficiencies and workflows, um, and having a national lab uh, coordinated effort, and we're hoping to get all national labs on board with this, uh, I, I believe it's the first of its kind in, in any kind of institutional uh, group 
So, um, you know, this is exciting for us. Uh, we love we love to you know get in front of this and innovate, and we're just really happy to partner with other national labs on this. Can I just jump in with maybe a couple follow-up thoughts on that? Um, so something that I really like about this initiative is that so far the process is, has been largely grassroots driven by individual researchers. And there's just a world of difference in the way a publisher reacts when an individual contacts and asks for something versus when a representative of national labs contacts them and asks for something. Um, and I'm really excited that the potential this has to kind of tip things over in the sense that now publishers will feel like an obligation to have a policy, whereas before um, it was very scattered and each policy was basically ad hoc written on its own. Um, so I joined the lab in early 2019, which was sometime after the transition guidelines had been set up. Um, and so there was a decent amount of infrastructure in place for basically people whose preferred name was not the same as their legal name, but there's still a long way to go. There's a lot of systems where somebody's name is included. And so I was encountering a lot of occasions where my legal name would inappropriately be used and it would out me or it would dead name me to someone. And the feeling that you get from that as a trans researcher is that this is an institution that was not designed for you, that was not designed for, with people like you in mind. And even above and beyond the amount of work it takes to deal with each of those, signs like having a office that will deal with publishers on your behalf is a really potent way to counter that. Um, and so it's not just about the amount of work we're actually having this done. It's about a symbol of inclusion. Yeah, um, if I can add to that too, thank you, Amelie, for sharing. That's really powerful. Um, just feeling like this is a place for you and that we, we include you in the ways that we're thinking about our policies and the way that we're thinking about um, you know, making sure that you feel supported, I think, was really the intent of the transition guidelines to begin with. And so I think this effort um, is a continuation of that. But I also think it, it probably is not the last, right? There's a, probably other things that we might encounter in the future that we can join forces, uh, even with other um, organizations, to uh, try to make things better, um, you know, for our trans colleagues. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's it's also very important for the academic community um, because publishing research, uh, publishing papers is one of the important ways in which the community assumes credit, um, provides credit to researchers. Uh, and if you don't get this credit under your preferred name, you know that this is this is a problem. And we need to make sure that in the academic community we provide everybody with the credit for their intellectual output uh, in the right way. So I think that that's, it's a very important problem for the community to solve as well. So Amelie, you mentioned having to do a lot of this sort of on your own as an individual reaching out to journals. Are you now at the point where all of your work is under your preferred name? I am getting there. Most of it is now under my preferred name. Um, there is one publisher remaining who didn't have a policy when I contacted them. And so I was sort of the first test case slash design of the policy. And they're still in the final stages of making the corrections. Um, so in terms of the publications that 
Yeah, I mean, like papers, almost all of them are done, but there is this sort of long tail of things with my name on it, like conference proceedings and data sets and talks and things like that. And that is not stuff that necessarily will have to go on my CV that will raise the same sort of like day-to-day -day issues that papers will, but it's still out there and it's still things I would like to get changed and I haven't even begun to deal with that. Right, and you know, it, it definitely highlights how difficult this is because you're you're an early career scientist, so I can only imagine how difficult this would be for someone who has you know, 20, 30 years of research under a name that they no longer want to go by. So it's great to hear there's progress being made on this. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit to about the last couple of years. And if you've felt like the culture within science, you know, from your own perspective, have you felt a shift happening recently that is different than maybe, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago? Yeah, um, so for context here, I started grad school in 2010, so I guess I have perspective on maybe the last 10 years of, of um, academic culture. And yes, there has been an enormous shift, I think. I think today, in a way that wasn't true when I first started, people will agree that in principle, it's good to accept trans people in academia. I think in 2010, it was still common for even academics and high-ranking people at institutions to express open hostility to trans inclusion. That's no longer true. People can no longer get away with that. Um, and the feel I get is that um, the overwhelming reaction that I have had from academics has been, I would call the median reaction positive, but slightly clueless maybe <laughs> um like open hostility is rare or like any kind of hostility is a pretty rare experience but people like i think for most of my colleagues i am the only trans person they know and i think that is just something that is going to take time to change because there were significant structural barriers to having a su successful career as an academic up until very recently and I know people who are senior academics who are trans, but overwhelmingly those are people who came out once they were already established. I don't know anyone who started their career openly out and transitioned mm. in grad school and then managed to become tenured. I just cannot think of a single example of a person like that. Um, and so I think it's just going to take some time for trans people to feel more comfortable being out at work, to be more open about their identities because it also used to be extremely common for trans people if they could to just be completely stealth at work to never tell any of their colleagues they were trans. Um, and that barrier seems to be falling. So there has been a big shift and I think things are continuing to shift and there's still a long way to go is how I would put it. So I did want to talk to you a little bit about yourself as a scientist because you know, I want to know how you, you got into STEM and what your passion is. Yeah, if you could just tell me a little bit about how you ended up at the lab. Yeah, I mean, I'm always happy to ramble on about the science I do. <laughs> so I started my career in um, theoretical physics. Um, I went to grad school working in a field called Lattice QCD, which is computer simulations of um, subatomic particles that compose like protons and neutrons inside of atoms. 
I decided to change fields. I took a bit of a left turn when I when I moved to Berkeley Lab and joined the material science group. There was a couple of reasons behind that. Um, firstly, I wanted to do something with a bit more of a direct social impact. Secondly, I had started working with AI towards the end of my time in physics, and that was very underdeveloped at the time in, in physics. I think it's probably more, a lot more now than it was. Um, and so I wanted to join an already established group that was already working on that. And thirdly, I mean, to be totally honest, that coincides with when I was out at work and when I changed my name and I wanted to have a clean break and moving to the other side of the country and changing fields is a pretty good way to do that. And so I moved to Berkeley Lab and I work in the group of um, Gerbrand Seda, who studies um, broadly battery science and battery materials and had a, a large effort going to use AI to analyze the text of scientific research papers or scientific literature in general. So I joined that group. In my time there, I have also started working on some problems to do with using AI to simulate materials properties, so to aid in materials discovery um, and do things like predict stability of proposed new materials or predict whether they have properties that might be useful for some technological application. Um, also, last year, during COVID, I became involved in an effort to do something similar to the work we've been doing with materials research or COVID research, where this problem of too much research was kind of amplified by the speed at which COVID research was coming out. I believe at like 500 papers a day now, um, which is just, it's an absurd rate. And so I became involved in, well, I, I started an effort to collect COVID papers in one central place um, and provide a way for scientists to filter the research as it was coming in. And I think that's kind of the scope of what I'm doing right now. Thank you. That's great. It, it's awesome because the work that you're doing is definitely represents an intersection of a couple really big priorities in science across the nation in general and especially at Berkeley Lab. So it's, it's always really great to hear about the intersection of machine learning and practical applications. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, something that's been great about being at Berkeley Lab is that it's actually possible to do this kind of work in a way that is not in many other institutions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, so, Jorg, in, in the process of reaching out to these publications and even other national labs to get them on board to this, which is obviously now we, you know, we can understand the importance of it. What has that been like from your perspective? Has there been um, a, a positive response? Have there been any sort of negotiations you've had to engage in? What's it been like? It's been mostly positive. Um, I, we started reaching out to publishers and uh, quite a few of them uh, already had established policies um, and that's the ones that we started with um, because we wanted to ask them whether they would, in addition to having authors uh, come and contact them about uh, changing the name on the paper, whether they be, would be okay having an institution contact them. So the ones that we started with were the ones that we knew um, were receptive to the idea because they already have uh, similar policies. Um, we've reached out to some of the others because um, our researchers uh, make use of them um, and they're generally um, 
were interested and, and, and welcoming. Uh, not all of them have formulated policies, fully formulated ones. Um, so there's certainly still a shift to be done. Uh, but on the other hand, we have agreements or we're working together with some of the largest publishers in the industry. That's LCV. Uh, they have thousands of journals. There's Springer Nature. They have recently announced their own policy. Again, with thousands of journals, including some really well-known ones under the Nature brand. Um, there's Wiley, another large publisher. Um, there's the American Chemical Society, um, a chemistry publisher. Um, so those are all important um, publishers and organizations. Um, we've also partnering, we're also partnering with Archive, which is a preprint server. Um, and, and they're also willing to make uh, such changes. So, so that is great to see, uh, so that it goes beyond uh, just academic journals. So yeah, we we started with a list of those places where our researchers uh, tend to publish in, um, and that response so far has been very positive. But of course, there's many, many more publishers left. So we only started with this, um, and, and we still have a long way to go. So I think there will be certainly be some kind of incentive or uh, pressure on other publishers to have similar policies, uh, seeing that now some of the largest or some of the most well-known publishers um, have these policies and are working with us, for example. Um, yeah, and on the side of the National Labs, uh, Lady can speak to that. Uh, she has done some of the work, but I, I, felt, I felt the response was very positive. One thing that stands out for me, and I, I think sort of Amelie um, alluded to this in terms of who's really advocating for this, I would say, right, like we have a partnership across uh, the National Lab Complex with DEI practitioners, um, researchers, um, other colleagues who interface with um, uh, publishers already. And so there's a there's a good cross section of allies um, and it doesn't have to be trans folks. I think that's the thing, right? We are pushing this institutionally. And, you know, being led by cisgender people and, you know, some of them not queer. And I mean, that and that's OK, because, I mean, all, all in all, it's really a push for um, furthering uh, diversity, equity and inclusion across the board. So I think that's one thing um, uh, to note. And I think, you know, this whole um, effort uh, will apply beyond uh, the LGBTQ plus community, right, to published authors who change their name for any reason and wish to retain recognition of their prior work. So, you know, I think it's 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 a bit of in the disability community called universal design. So when you do like a side uh, sidewalk cutout, it's not just for people with wheelchairs, but people with strollers and, you know, carts and, you know, it, it helps everyone. So I think that's also the message of this is it helps everyone. And I think um, it's it's very powerful. Yeah, that's such a good point that I'm glad you brought out. It's um it's really something that will benefit, I think, anyone within academia. And so, you know, I think that it's it's hard not to see the value in a policy like this. So to, to end, I'd just like to ask a little bit about um, this initiative, which is obviously something that is going to continue to evolve over time. Um, Jorg and Lady, when can we expect some of these new policies to be in place? And do you know what form these guidelines might take? Such as, you know, if, if a scientist like Amelie wanted help getting their name changed on a publication, what, what will that look like? What will the process look like? And what will be the role of an institution like Berkeley Lab? Yeah, so uh, 
together with our other national lab partners um, as some of the next steps we have to design and, and work on the ex actual workflows uh, for that initiatives. Um, so there, there are certain considerations. First of all, how do we um, ensure that we have got the authorization of the researcher to engage on their behalf with publishers? How do we document that? Uh, do we need to document this? And the second one is what is the information that publishers typically, typically need um, to change the name on a paper? So there's slightly different variations between publishers, what they request and require. Um, so that's something we have to work with the publishers on. Um, and then we have to create some kind of database or uh, information how each and every publisher likes to implement that on their end. Um, is it an email to a certain office? If it's, is it an online form or is, is it something else? But I think in general, we have some general agreements um, with some of the large publishers to, to work out those details. And, and that will be the next step. Yeah, I, I have to admit, when you mentioned that working with different publications, um, them having different kind of requirements or documentation, I'm not, well, I guess I'm not surprised, but it, it may be disappointing that you even need to have any certain form or any certain, um, you know, reason, because ideally, right, it would just be because that's what the individual wants, and this is their work, and this represents their portfolio and their their career. But um Do you think it, that that will be kind of following on soon, that maybe it's just going to be more bureaucratic and logistics heavy in the beginning? Yes. Uh, and also to be fair to the publishers, the publishers are working on harmonizing uh, their own workflows and requirements. Uh, there's talks across the industry uh, with industry bodies as well on their end um, to make sure that not just The requirements for, for name changes are, are the same, but also that the implementation is the same. The way that you change a, a name on, on a scientific paper can vary. Um, do you also change the references within the paper? Do you change any pronouns that appear within the paper? Um, do you um, announce that you have changed the paper or not? Uh, and the preferred way is not to announce it, uh, to maintain the privacy um, of the authors. Uh, but those are, are questions that the industry is addressing within itself, um, within their own um, bodies. So I think those those kind of workflows, they, they will streamline, um, I'm fairly certain. Right. So, yeah, I just, I just hope that this uh, normalizes um, author name changes for any reason um, on scientific papers. Um, It's something that is good for the community that will benefit everybody, as Lady mentioned, uh, whether it's a transgender researcher or whether it's someone who changes the name because of marriage or for any other reason. Um, I hope this becomes just a routine process um, that will take place. And right now, it may not be always easy um, to engage with all the publishers on this, but um, going forward and with time, I hope that this becomes a standard process for the industry. Yes, yes. Um, just as someone who's had to deal with publishers who are bringing things into place, this is the kind of, this is exactly the kind of thing that has required a lot of work on behalf of individual trans people contacting publishers who will not have necessarily thought this through ahead of time and they might be well-meaning but they might have what to them seem like perfectly reasonable suggestions like we need to 
send out an announcement about this or you need to notify your co-authors and that explaining again and again why it's not okay to do that is it can be quite draining <laughs> um, and so just having that taken out of your hands is a huge deal um also the other point i want to make is that the implicit expectation that academics will have one name that they're referred to by that is constant throughout their life is an expectation that was made with a certain community of people in mind with the needs of a certain community in mind and for academia to be more diverse to be truly diverse it means not having that assumption made often these kinds of efforts can be sort of seen as giving some sort of special privilege to certain groups but the simple fact is the fact that publishers built everything with the expectation that authors would have a name that is constant throughout their lives was already privileging one group in particular and all we're asking is to remove that. Hmm. That was well said. Yeah, well said. Thank you so much for being here. It was great talking to you all. Thank you, Leah. Goodbye. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.